Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's most interesting brewers and get their tips, tricks, and techniques and deliver them right to you. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. On today's episode, we're going to hit the feedback slush pile because, hey, some of you guys had reactions to some of the things we've been talking about. Go Imagine. Imagine that. And then uh, after that, we're going to head over to the pub, uh, talk a little bit about uh, all stuff that's going on, but also talk about what happens when brewers leave, why there might be a different idea behind uh, the current bubble status of brewing talk about a big retirement in the industry and also some new guidelines that have hit the the weeds that you might be interested in because i learned something in reading them and that's always good well it's amazing as you admitted it yeah well hey look i can't know everything (laughs) try yeah i have to appear humble sometimes so we're good yeah we're going to go to the brewery we're going to talk a little uh, special release from sierra nevada and then off into the lounge we're actually going to go over to st louis and talk about some interesting archaeological discoveries in beer. And from there, we're going to Q&A, quick tip, something other, and then get you back on the road and back to your work. <laughs> well, and you know, that's a that's a that's like almost a threat, isn't it? Yeah. Get back to work. How else are you going <laughs> to... You can't have any beer if you don't do any work. Right. Okay, we'll be right back with all of that stuff following this word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew. Makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iotaphor. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by... The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back. It's time that we get started on the good stuff, and that means that the first thing we're going to do is uh, a few announcements about stuff that's going on that you might want to know about. Take it, Drew. Well, yeah. We always have to do announcements because, well, we have to announce things. That's right. So our first announcement is, if you haven't been paying attention to the feed, you missed a really great episode last week of The Brew Files, where I sat down and talked with Ed Coffey about New England IPA, all about the latest haze craze, and we kept Denny far, far away. 
I highly recommend it. It's 42-ish minutes, 46 minutes. Uh, totally worth your time and effort if you ever wanted to try and figure out just what makes those things so darn irresistible to so many people. Yeah, we've been getting really good response to it. There's uh, apparently a lot of people interested in the style and how to brew it, and uh, Ed has some great tips in there. The other thing we want to let you know about is the International Homebrew Day video that was produced by Ornery Ales. Um, these guys have just put together an amazingly good video with clips from uh, people all over the world brewing on International Homebrew Day. And uh, yours truly and Mr. Beecham are in there also for a little bit, but it, it's a good video anyway, and you should watch it. It's really fun, really well made, and uh, as always, we'll put a link on the website for it. Yeah, who doesn't like to hear homebrewers talking about their big passion homebrew? Really? And then, of course, it's coming soon. Get your tickets. It's time for HomebrewCon 2017 in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Just give you a quick rundown. Uh, Danny and I are obviously going to be, both be there. But here's what we're doing on the 14th at about 6.30 p.m. We'll be doing a trivia at the Chop and Brew Party by our good friends over at Chop and Brew and Brewlosophy, who will be hosting a party at Insight Brewing Company. They have tickets, so you need to go to chopandbrew.com to go buy them. I think they're almost out, so if you're going to be anywhere in the area on Wednesday the 14th, make sure you get your tickets, because otherwise you'll get to miss me asking you some really devilishly hard trivia questions. <laughs> on the 15th... You'll be able to see Denny, Marshall, Malcolm, and I all sitting down in a panel discussion called Hold My Beer and Watch Me Science, where we tell you all about experimentation, how to do it, what we've done, why we do it, and what the hell we think you should do with your experiments. And then on the 16th, if that wasn't enough for you, well, then I'll be doing a panel uh, in the morning. That's right. After club night, I'm doing a panel <laughs> yeah, at I 9.30 see in the morning. Yeah, I'll, I'll be a... Cogent, cogent man at that yeah, point in time. Right. But I'll be sitting down with uh, other leaders of homebrew clubs that have won the Radagast Award, talking about what it takes to actually build a great homebrew club. And then after that, Denny and I will be doing, well, we'll be doing a podcast at our good friend and sponsor, Brewcraft USA's booth on the expo floor. Come, harass us, watch us do this thing that we do that you are now putting into your ears. Right, and, and, then, uh, and that's going to be from 2.30 to 4.30, and uh, right before that, we'll be at the Brewer's Publications booth doing book signings, so come by, both of them, say hi, and uh, be sure to bring a Stump the Idiots question for the podcast. And then on the 17th, on the 17th, well, Denny Russ, we hope. <laughs> Wait, that's Saturday, right? Yeah, that's Saturday, which means that there'll be more awards and more things to do. Yeah, the, uh, for, the, I, for those of you who have been to HomebrewCon before, the award ceremony is taking a, a totally new format this year, and I think it's actually going to be pretty cool. No more awards banquet. There's going to be kind of uh, awards in an auditorium uh, with munchies for people, and uh, I think it's going to be a lot more fun that way. Yeah, and then there'll be a big closeout party that will go on for a couple hours. It will end earlier than any of the pro night or club night uh, activities in the past to give you an opportunity to go explore the vast array of beer options that you have for yourself in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Unless you're Denny, who's taking an early flight out on Sunday, which means he has to go to bed because he's an old man. That's right. That's the way it works. And we also want to let you know it is your last chance to support uh, our charity, the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. 
Uh, we are trying to raise a bunch of money for their pooches, and all the money that we get in through the end of June will be uh, given to the shelter. Now, how do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. You go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and down the right-hand side, you'll see a bunch of links you can click on. One of them is for Patreon, and if you uh, click on the Patreon link, you can donate whatever amount of money you want, and it'll go to the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. There are also links there for uh, the American Homebrewers Association. If you click that one, you can join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy, and there's a link there for Brew Your Own Magazine. Click that, and you can get a subscription to Brew Your Own. And finally, you'll see a link for Amazon there. And if you're going to buy something from Amazon, we'd really appreciate it if you would come to our website, click that link, and go to Amazon that way. Because then Amazon tosses us back a little bit of money, which we use to support the podcast. And even better, it doesn't cost you anymore. So just think of it as Amazon giving us free money when you go there and click on that link. Free money. Who, who can argue with that? Well, and hey, don't forget, that's not the only way that you can support the podcast. Please remember to like us, subscribe to us, leave us a review in the podcast application of your choice, whether that be iTunes or Google Play or wherever else. Leave us a review. It helps people find us. And you want people to find us, don't you? That's right. For uh, for authors like us and podcasters like us, uh, reviews are our lifeblood. So if you've bought a book, please go to Amazon and post a review of it. Yeah, unless you didn't like it, but I can't imagine that. And uh, if you love the podcast, please go to iTunes or wherever your uh, favorite podcast app lets you post reviews and put a review on it there. We appreciate it greatly. I don't know about you, Denny, but I feel the call, the call of feedback. And it's not the 60s anymore. It means we have some mail to read. <laughs> okay. All right. Our first uh, email came in from uh, Nicholas Tier about the kids in the brewery segment from Southern last episode. Says, I heard your discussion on kids in tap rooms and the sign Southern put up asking parents to watch their children. I have two young children, and my wife and I frequently take them to tap rooms and winery tasting rooms that are family friendly. Most of these places are set up for the family atmosphere and encourage parents to bring their kids. The local winery we enjoy has an awesome patio with outdoor space, and they have games for kids on the weekends. They've made this part of their business model because they'll know we'll spend more money the longer we stay. That being said, there are places I would never take my children to because they cater strictly to a 21-plus crowd, which is fine with me. As a parent, that's part of the job, knowing where to take your children and where not to. Finally, I totally agree that parents should be responsible for their kids while they're at a tap or tasting room. Everything Southern put on their sign are simply societal expectations of kids and parents. If your kids are having a bad day or you can't handle supervising them, then perhaps you should stay home. I find it interesting how offended people get over things that seem like common sense. I didn't get anybody responding to this in a vitriolic negative fashion i think everybody amongst our listenership who decided to respond is reasonable calm semi-adult human beings thank you <laughs> that's right okay we also got some feedback about uh wicked weed brewing being sold out to uh the conglomerate uh from dennis sauer who says you guys missed the point on the wicked weed sellout inbev is the enemy of craft they shut down distribution possibilities, making it harder and harder for small operations to get shelf space. They lobby against craft brewers, making it harder for the small brewer to do business. And just recently canceled hop contracts with small craft breweries after buying out a South African hop operation. They are the enemy. 
Added to that is, as mentioned, the stealth dishonesty of their operation. Changing a beer recipe is not the concern. It is the powerful stance that InBev takes against the small craft brewer. The wicked weed sellout is 30 pieces of silver in the hands of what was viewed as a trusted craft beer advocate. Okay, first of all, I thought we did discuss the distribution issue a lot because to both of us, that's one of the biggest problems, huh? Well, I mean, I think... First, to Dennis's point, yeah, we didn't hammer on this as hard in this particular episode, but we have in the past. And so we we very purposely in the last episode didn't take that uh, tone with it because, well, we've talked a lot about that. And, yeah, right. Yeah, I, I didn't really, I didn't feel like uh, we needed to keep repeating the message. But Dennis, trust me when I say we are both 100% on board with what you're talking about. You know, our usual stance on this is, congratulations, we're glad that you made your money. Now we're never buying you again. At least that's mine. <laughs> yeah, and, and that that's pretty much the way I feel, too. And Dennis does bring up an interesting point where he mentioned the uh, South African hop farm thing. You know, so both SAB Miller and ABI, who are now officially almost the same company, or maybe they are now. I can't remember if that's actually closed yet. They have hop farms. They have barley farms. They have massive resources behind them. And so one of the big worries that people have had is about, you know, well, these conglomerates can control a big portion of the ingredients and keep them at bay. Well, and we saw kind of the the first rumblings of that with the South African hop thing, where basically an independent South African hop distributor announced that they would no longer be able to get hops from an SAB hop farm and distribute them to American craft brewers. And there were a few American craft brewers getting them, but not a lot. They, they still hadn't made a big penetration to the U.S. market. And everybody flipped their lid because it's literally what everybody's yeah. been talking about. Now, ABI, of course, says, oh, well, you know, but the reason why that we're not distributing those anymore is because we need the hops and we've had a lousy hop year. Okay, fine. But the other part that people kind of forget about is that that's SAB, the SAB side of the house, right? And the, okay, so South African hops, whatever. People forget that one of the largest hop operations here in the U.S. is the Elk Mountain Hop Farm that Anheuser-Busch owns. So one of the big advantages that they can have, and by the way, trust me, I've seen how much hops goes into Budweiser and Bud Light. It's not much. One of the big advantages that they can have is if they can get their hands on some high high in demand hop strains, you know, so let's say that they find the next Citra that is open that they can actually grow, they can reserve that for their crafty brands. And you know what? That's totally within their right. It's still sort of a crappy thing to do. So that's one of the biggest uh, reasons why I think people start to freak out about that. But regardless, I, I consider it. I consider it a tempest in a teapot, man. Well, uh, for the I, South, I, yeah, the South African thing was a tempest in a teapot. But the reason why people reacted to it is because it spoke to everybody's fears. It was the it was the first sort of torchlight thing of hey, that's exactly what we told you they were going to do. So I get it. I understand why people freaked out. I'm less worried about it, I guess, than a lot of people are. Uh, I, but I've been wrong before, so uh, I, I guess we'll just leave it at that. Huh? Yeah, I mean, distribution to me is still the scary part. The stuff that's been written up about brand goodwill and trying to push down the price of craft beer so that Budweiser doesn't look like a sub-premium anymore. Yeah, that kind of thing. That's some interesting analysis that's out there. But there were also some really great articles written by a couple of folks. Sarah Bennett, who's a friend of mine in the LA Weekly. Uh, wrote a article, and we'll include links to these, uh, called Budweiser is Trying to Fool You into Thinking It's Beer is Still Craft, Don't Buy It. Jim Varel uh, posted an article in Paste Magazine called The BS Arguments of Craft Beer Sellouts. 
I think if you read those, you'll hear all the things that uh, Denny and I very strongly believe in. Ta-da. So, Dennis, yes, we we totally did not hammer on this in the last episode with the Wicked Weed thing. But trust me, we've hammered on it in the past. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Okay, en- enough bad news. How about some good beer to uh, make up for it? There you go. Cool. We're going to uh, stroll over to the pub, and uh, we'll be right back with you. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town usa we are drinking a couple beers uh what are you having today mr beecham well i'm having one that's special for me i'm having a bottle that it literally just arrived on my doorstep from our sponsor pico brew and they sent me a version of my citrus saison that they put together as a pico pack so if you have one of the pico kits or one of the pico machines you can actually go and buy my citrus saison as a kit and make it. So now I actually have to uh, uh, crack this open and evaluate it and see just how well they did and send them notes. Cool. Yeah. Cool. That, that's great, man. And uh, I'll just mention, too, that uh, they also have a, a version of my rye IPA as a Pico pack. So if you have a Pico, check out the citrus saison and the little Ripa. And uh, those are a couple beers that uh, Drew and I designed the recipes for. Full compliance note. Uh, Denny and I do receive a kickback for every kit that you sell or that you buy. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, I don't know how much, but we get something. Um, <laughs> remember, I uh, remember our great interview with Mino Choi. Oh yeah. Well, Mino has sent me some of his triple decocted Hefeweizen. He and uh, our good buddy Jonathan Etley got together and brewed this. These guys are just whacked out. They go out to a spring, collect the water, bring it back do a triple decoction beer with it and this is no ordinary half of ice and this uh, ends up in the seven to eight percent area and truthfully this is a beer style that i don't care for and usually try to avoid drinking but if i could get their beer more often i would change my tune this is an astoundingly good beer so kind of like a pale Weizenbach? Uh, yeah, you know, that's kind of that's kind of where they ended up with it, but it's it's mainly just a very strong hef. Uh the esters are perfectly balanced, not over the top. Uh, a little bit more clove than banana. Uh, maybe that has something to do with the uh, triple decoction mash. I, I will say now that uh, I have finally found a Hefeweizen that I enjoy drinking. And that's a, that's a real admission for me. Somebody stop the presses. <laughs> yeah, next thing you know, I'm going to be saying I like Northeast IPA, huh? Yeah, either that or cream ale. The second you say you like cream ale, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm calling the, the people in the wacky white coats. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I I like cream ale, man. I've brewed many of them. I think I need to call 911. All right. But first, somebody get get Drew an ambulance, uh, and then we'll actually get into some of the stuff we really want to talk about here. Uh, And the first thing is the uh, Brewers Association style guidelines have changed. This isn't going to affect home brewers, but it will affect uh, commercial brewers entering beers in GABF and uh, competitions like that, right? Yeah. So if you've if you've ever seen it, like, you know, go look at the results for the GABF, the World Beer Cup, and you'll see, like, they hand out a metric ton of medals. And that's because they have a metric ton of styles. Unlike, say, the BJCP, you know, where you have, you know, medals for each general category, they have each individual subcategory getting medals. And it's vast. Now, as Danny pointed out, for us homebrewers, it doesn't really mean much, right? It doesn't have any impact on our competitions or anything else. But what I do think it's interesting is to look through and read some of the different guidelines because they're very short, but they give you some sort of ideas about things that are out there that are being brewed because the Brewers Association guidelines are really all about what's being reflected on the commercial market for the most part. And it's really fascinating to see some of the the things that they have in there. Like, for instance, uh, they have a Keller beer category, which is awesome. They also have things like uh, German Schoop beer and... German what beer? It's, uh, uh, sorry, uh, 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 shops, I think is how you say it, pale and dark. And of course, I know I, I, I got that wrong. Yeah, I wasn't questioning your pronunciation. I was going, what the heck is that? It's a a German-style wheat beer without German wheat beer yeast. Wow. So it's, yeah, I, I was like, oh, huh, well, that's different. So, that might be something I'd like. Yeah, so, it, and it varies a little, it, it varies from, you know, say the American wheat beers. And even then, the one that made me kind of have to go, huh, is there's a light American wheat beer category, but it has two. It has light American wheat beer with yeast and light American wheat beer without yeast. <laughs> and I had to click through that because I want I want to know. Yeah, Widmer and filtered Widmer? No, as far as I can tell, yeah, it's, it's also uh, the difference in yeast character, right? So, with yeast, says uh, that the yeast character should be low to medium and should not dominate, right? Yeah. And then the without yeast is no yeast aroma and flavor should be evident. That's how fine some of these splits are. So it's, you know, because even the Woodmere uh, Hefeweiss strain has a little bit of yeast character in it. Right, it's fairly neutral, yeah. but it's still it, there is a yeast character to it. Yeah, there is just a, yeah, there is some to it for sure. So this is like the difference between doing something with say, you know, an alt strain, which I think the Whitmere strain is a variant of an alt strain, mm-hmm. and something with like ten fifty six. Wait, no, no, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, all I can say is I'm really glad I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, but I thought that was amusing, and so we'll include a link to the new guidelines. Like we said, absolutely no impact on American homebrewers, except for as a research tool and something else to look at. Yeah, right. If, if you're looking for a style you've never brewed before, you might want to look at the uh, the, the American Brewers Association guidelines and uh, see if you can find something weird and wacky there that you can try out. And speaking of beer education, we have just recently learned that Lynn Kruger is retiring as the head of the Siebel Institute which you may or may not know is uh, 
pretty much the U.S. premier brewing school in Chicago. And Lynn has been there for, what, 21 years? Yeah, so she's been with Siebel for 21 and a half years. And the last 17 years, she was the president and COO. So she's been in charge of the Siebel Institute for a good long while. Yeah, uh, and obviously she's done a great job because they've turned out a lot of great brewers during that time. Uh, it, it is going to be strange to not see her at events anymore. She's kind of a mainstay, huh? Yeah, it, it is kind of it is kind of strange. But it, I mean, I remember when I first got into this hobby. Yeah, say a, a couple years after that, like the big dream that a lot of homebrewers had was, you know, what really boost my knowledge if I could go to the Siebel uh, Siebel Institute, hang out in the Goose Island pub where they actually taught out of, and you know, spend two weeks just immersing myself into into beer. And I knew a lot of brewers who did that, and it was a, a very, very useful thing. And now they have web courses and everything else, so you don't have to go to Chicago. But hey, Chicago's fun. <laughs> Except in the winter. Well, um, even in the winter, it's fun. It's just a, a different sort of fun for people of a different bit. Yeah, right. Uh, and we do know that they say that at Siebel, they're going to be promoting their director of education, uh, John Hannafin, to actually act as president until they can appoint somebody to replace Lynette. But... It's going to be strange. I, yeah. ju- I mean, well, I mean, I, I just, I, I just really say we should uh, all tip our hats to uh, to Lynn because, I mean, she's done a hell of a job of making Siebel Institute an ongoing thing. I know there were times when people were like, "Why?" or there wasn't going to, it didn't look like it was going to survive, but she really kept it going and has really made it a force for good in the industry. That's right. It is the end of an era, the beginning of a new one, and thanks, Lynn, for everything you've done for brewing. And finally. We want to talk about uh, brewers leaving their breweries, uh, just like Lynn leaving Siebel, and we want to talk about the bubble. Go for it. Yeah, so news just broke as we're recording this that uh, good old Peter Bruchart, uh, who started his career really in being the guy behind Rodenbach and really became known to American craft beer fans as the man with the plan behind new Belgian Brewing Company's Sour Ale program and sort of been in charge of their beers ever since just announced that, uh, well, he's going to be leaving New Belgium by the end of the year. And he's starting up a new side project uh, there in Colorado and is going to be slowly transitioning himself over to that, which is a much, much smaller company, uh, focusing on a lot of different things, but slowly phasing himself out of New Belgium and slowly going back to his small-time brewer roots. You know, kind of blew my mind to read that because I really thought, well, you know, Peter is really... You know, New Belgium beer, you know, he's responsible for so much of the character. And also, Peter is an incredibly passionate brewer. So, it's also not incredibly surprising to me that he's going off to go do something small. Right? Yeah, um, you know, and I think that probably one of the biggest influences I've ever had in my own brewing was the keynote address he gave at uh, NHC in Denver a, a few years back, you know? Uh, I, I still remember him saying, you know, when I go to work in the morning, I don't think about, you know, what a beer is going to taste like when I brew it or something like that. I think about being inspired by the shape of this glass or by the color of that building over there or something like that. And really gave me a new way to think about my own brewing. And uh, every time I feel like I'm getting into a rut, I think about what Peter said, and it, it kind of revitalizes me. So uh, I want to wish him all the best in his new endeavor. Hopefully uh, it, 
He'll find uh, his personal satisfaction there and be cranking out some great beer for all of us to enjoy. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because I think it's that same talk that also gave me some inspiration where I remember correctly he had a line in that talk or another talk he was giving where he opened it up by saying, in Belgium, there are no styles. Yep, that's right. And that's right. It, and next thing you know, there was Cezanne guacamole. Yeah, exactly. And chata. <laughs> um, but, right. So Peter leaving reminded me of a couple stories that uh, we were going to cover earlier this year, but things went squirrely and too much stuff going on that we had to cover. But there has recently been a spate of brewers leaving you know, they're the breweries that they're associated with. So Peter leaving New Belgium put me into mind of a couple stories that we meant to cover earlier this year, but we didn't, where we were seeing some very sort of bedrock, well-associated brewers who are like tightly tied with the images of their breweries that they're working with. You know, like some folks from Jester King uh, or uh, Todd, I think, Hogue or Hog from Surly. It's probably the biggest one who left Surly to go join Three Floyds. And we're seeing more and more more of this. And we always kind of saw some of this at the lower level, you know, where brewers would pick up and leave and move around to different opportunities. I mean, a good portion of my brewer friends, I think they, if they're at a brewery more than two years, I'd I'd be surprised until they reach a certain point. And some of this really kind of brought into mind to me, I think what we're seeing here, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about, oh, is there a craft beer bubble? Is the bubble going to burst? Are we going to lose the this broad swath of 4,000 plus breweries that we have and people talking about, you know, you know, ABI taking up shelf space and, and tap space and how it's much harder for the, you know, brewery to grow and compete. Well, looking at this trend where we're seeing some brewers leave to go do their own projects and that, and the stats that are coming back, they're showing, I think it's somewhere around, 50% of the craft breweries that are out there, you know, of those nearly the 4,000 that we have, of of those, about 50% of them are doing the vast majority of their sales over their own bar. You know, it's the brewery taproom, right? With a a food truck. And that seems to be where a a lot of the traffic is right now in the industry. And it makes me wonder if we're not really headed for a bubble, but what we're really headed for is breweries becoming well in the restaurant model or as a lot of people uh, a lot of other people have pointed out maybe what we're doing is we're moving to a german model of brewing where in germany you have your big national companies and international companies you have virtually nothing on the mid-tier and then you have all of these small local breweries where you know it's like the dude pouring the beer over the tavern and it makes me think because now we're starting to see these brewers who this is the exact same thing that you see happening with chefs. Are we not actually going to see a bubble, but are we seeing our industry turn into the restaurant model where people come in, they can open up a restaurant and they more than likely are going to fail in a short period of time. Same thing with the brewery. Maybe this is where the industry is going. And this is why we won't see really, maybe, maybe we won't see the same sort of explosive growth we've seen. Cause after all, you're going to reach a point in time where there's no more locality you can split down into but maybe the real growth is all going to be in these micro microbrewers who are doing say under a thousand barrels and they're doing mostly across the bar, just like your mom and pop pizza joint. And we have endless numbers of those. That's uh, that's an interesting supposition. That's, that's very much what it was like pre prohibition, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you think about it, like all of these, 
you know, all these breweries that, that we know now, they all started off as small local breweries and then slowly conglomerated new and newer and newer markets to them. You know, all the all the buyouts that we're seeing right now are happening because people need money to expand and do this, that, and the other. And that seems like there's a pressure there, mostly in the mid-tier. You know, once you reach a certain size, you know, something kicks in that says, we must grow, we must keep distributing so that we can afford the bills that we have. But there's a very thriving community that seems to just be thriving on the level of, nah, we're happy being the neighborhood brewery. <laughs> and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Well, and particularly now with things like mobile canning lines and, you know, sort of the labeling stuff that people are getting and the availability of really slick designers out there doing new artwork and all that. Sometimes it's actually really hard to tell when you have somebody who's dedicated themselves to this and are still a minor sized brewery, their packaging and their presentation can be so slick that, you know, you can find the product on a shelf and not know that, hey, that's Joe over around the corner. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to be real curious to see how that shakes out. Yeah, so, well, I'm I'm curious. I mean, I, this was a thought that, that I had, that's been occurring to me over the past couple of weeks, that I think we really are moving into a restaurant model. And I see this with brewers leaving uh, breweries that they may be longtime associated with, but they don't have any ownership equity in, right? So, like, one of the big things with Todd leaving Surly was, I mean, he helped build Surly up into this massive organization, but all he was seeing was a salary. Right, you know, he wasn't, he didn't have a part ownership in the whole thing. Now he's moving on to someplace where he does have that opportunity. You know, maybe the same thing's happening with Peter. Maybe, uh, you know, it's the same thing as like when your sous chef leaves a restaurant to go open up his own place. You know, he has a bunch of investors who are giving him a portion of the, of the restaurant to make it a success with his name, with his picture. Right. So mm -hmm. maybe that's what we're seeing with the breweries. Well, what I want to know is I want to see what our audience thinks. Do you think I'm onto something here? Are we moving into that restaurant model or that German model that I've heard some people talk about? You know, am I full of hooey? I am full of hooey, but am I full of hooey about this? Yeah, but yeah, this particular topic, you may not be for a change. Uh, and it is it is an interesting supposition, and uh, only time will tell. So we'll just kind of have to pay attention to what happens and see where it goes. And with that said... I guess it's time to uh, head over to the brewery for a while, huh? Yeah, it's going to be time to talk a recipe. Cool. We're going to finish up these delicious beers that we are drinking, and then we're going to head over to the brewery, and we'll see you there in just a minute. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. here in the brewery there are burners going there's shiny stainless steel stuff all over the place pumps are humming and we're going to talk about a homebrew version of a commercial recipe 
Ruthless Rye IPA from Sierra Nevada. Yeah, so that's one of my uh, that's one of my favorite seasonals, and I know you have disagreements about this, but whatever. Um, yeah. Well, a few, a few years back, I mean, God, how many years has it been now? It's what, like eight years old now? Something, yeah. That's which, right. Which is sort of terrifying. Uh, Sierra Nevada finally tur- uh, took a pivot, and they'd always said for years and years, we're not releasing an IPA. They, they didn't have an IPA, right? They had Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. They had Celebrator as their seasonal thing, which people have called an IPA, and they're like, it's not an IPA. Oh, whoa, whoa, Celebration. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Celebrator's a Bach. Uh, yep. So, yeah, so they had Celebration, which they said was not an IPA, even though everybody's like, that's an IPA. <laughs> yeah, right. What else could it possibly be? Yeah, well, hey, whatever. So, but a couple of years back, uh, Sierra Nevada finally kind of got on board with the IPA train. They saw which way the wind was blowing, released Torpedo, and then uh, other things came out there. And one of the ones that I really always enjoyed was Ruthless Rye. And just before National Homebrew Day on May 5th, Sierra Nevada went and published a five-gallon homebrew recipe for Ruthless Rye. Now, this isn't surprising. They've done this sort of thing in the past. And remember that Sierra Nevada and the Grossmans have a long history as homebrewers. You know, Ken and Steve Grossman learned to brew before they were legal. Ken ran a homebrew shop, and Sierra Nevada grew out of that homebrew shop. And so they're sticking very closely to their roots. And I love the fact that they released this. And, uh, Dan, you had a story about Ruthless Rye. Yeah, um, I had the opportunity to go to Sierra Nevada Beer Camp uh, when they were uh, actually make, or working on the recipe uh, for this beer. Um, and uh, one of the days we were over in the QA lab going through things, and they said, hey, do you guys want to try some of the test batches of uh, our new rye IPA? Well, I'm sure most of you guys know how I feel about rye IPAs, so I jumped on the chance to check it out. And quite frankly, I was disappointed. It it didn't seem to have any rye in it. And uh, me being me, I spoke up because, you know, I'm, I, I'm not shy. I'm going to tell these people what I think. So I said to them, you know, this could really use more rye. And the response that I got was uh, they could only use 10% rye because their brewing system would gum up if they tried to louder more than that. So that's the reason why there's the amount of rye that there is in Ruthless Rye. The mm-hmm. other thing is I'm not a huge fan of uh, Magnum for a dry hop either. So this beer has never been one of my favorites. It's not that I dislike it. It just doesn't do much for me. And uh, it doesn't I realize that there are other people that like it a lot. And that's that's fine. You're You're allowed to be wrong, as Drew would say. Yep. And in this case, you definitely are. So... We'll just share the recipe out real quick because I, w- I want to talk a couple of aspects because I thought it was interesting. Five gallons, mash temp of 153.5. This is how precise they are. 90-minute boil time, 1062 OG, 1012 FG, ferment at 62 degrees with Cal Ale. Go figure. Comes out at 6.6 ABV with 55 IBUs. And the malt bill, pretty straightforward. 10.8 pounds of pale two-row malt, one pound of rye, 12.8 ounces of Crystal 40. I think you can get away with 13 or 12. And 2.1 ounces of chocolate malt. Now, to Danny's point, that's about 7% rye, which I know yeah. is not enough for you. Your rye IPA is what, 20%? 18. 18? All right. So that's, uh, that's the, uh, the malt side of the house. Single infusion mash at 153.5. The hops, 90-minute charge of Bravo. 
one ounce, then here's where, uh, here's where we get into the sort of interesting part for me. 15 minutes, 1.5 ounces of Magnum. Five minutes, three ounces of Chinook, one ounce of Magnum. And then a seven-day dry hop of two ounces of Chinook, one ounce of Citra, and one ounce of Magnum. So that's a whole heck of a lot of Magnum. And, <laughs> they I, must have gotten I'm, a good buy on it. Yeah, well, and I'm see, I'm used to using Magnum as my nice neutral bittering hop, you know, for virtually anything except for American IPAs. Also, I tend to use Warrior in that case or Bravo. Uh, and a couple of interesting things stand out to me. This is that I mean, I think that explains why Ruthless Rye has kind of a very strong herbal note to it, uh, kind of backing up the rye component. It's because from the Magnum. And then the Chinook. Maybe they're trying to make up for the rye or lack thereof. Well, maybe I'm, or the, I think maybe they're just trying to accentuate the character. And then the Chinook, I always think of Chinook as an early bittering edition. So it's interesting to see it up there in the front uh, as a, I guess, a big f- grapefruit bomb type edition. And the Citra to really kind of round out those fruit notes. You know, um, I, uh, I often use, well, I shouldn't say often, but I frequently use uh, Chinook as a flame-out addition and a dry hop, and I really, really like that. Well, there you go. I, I guess I'm just, I've always tended to put it early and as a small addition in addition to whatever I'm getting most of my IBUs out of in order to kind of drive a little bit of that bite. Well, that's, uh, that's because you're not a very adventurous brewer, as we all know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless... We'll include a link to Sierra Nevada's Ruthless Wire recipe that they uh, shared out. Uh, totally dig on it. You can totally take Danny's advice, take out some of that pale malt, put in some more rye, you know, do something with the hops if you don't like Magnum. But still, it's I think it's a wonderful thing that they do this sort of thing. I also think it goes back to the idea that the recipe is not king in the brewing world, no matter what some people will tell you. Yeah, right. And one little uh, comment I'd like to make on it, they actually have uh, an extract conversion for the two-row malt, not for the for anything else. Uh, but uh, if you're used to making extract batches and steeping your grains, rye actually needs to be mashed. But as we all know, mashing is just a steep with a little bit uh, stronger parameters. So just make sure that uh, you put that rye malt in and uh, hold it at about 153 for a good half hour or so and uh, you'll get conversion, and you'll be good to go. The other thing is, based on my own experience for these kinds of beers, uh, I prefer domestic rye malt over uh, continental rye malt for American IPAs with rye in them. So that's just something you may want to take into consideration if all your homebrew shop has is domestic rye malt. As far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. Now, is there a particular reason you prefer one over the other? I feel like at least the continental rye malts I've used have a smoother, kind of more restrained flavor to them, whereas American rye malt, and maybe it's just the difference in the varieties of rye, American rye malt seems to be more in your face and have a more aggressive character to it. Woohoo! America! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, you know, if, uh, if this is one of those beers that you just can't get enough of, now you can make it for yourself and uh, go out and buy some of Sierra Nevadas and compare and see how close you got, huh? Yeah, or hell, just enjoy making a pretty dang decent beer or make it your own. That's right. 
That's right. Uh, and definitely, like Drew says, if it was me, I would take out a pound of the pale malt and add another pound of rye. So there's my recommendation. All right. Listen to the old man. He might know something yeah. about rye. <laughs> I think it's time for us to go interview somebody. It's just about time. Is that what you're about to say? No. No, 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 no. <laughs> because that's the cue for the ukulele. Okay, mm. we're going to uh, wander over to the lounge and listen to an interview that I did earlier today with Rebecca Schranz of Earthbound Brewing in St. Louis, Missouri. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I've done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer, beer. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the comfy chairs. Grab yourself a pint. Grab yourself your favorite tobacco or non-tobacco or, well, just essential oils. Sit back, relax, and let's talk. So, actually, what we're going to do and talk today is uh, we found a really cool article a couple of weeks ago about a St. Louis brewery that is expanding their operations uh, from a very tiny operation to a much less tiny operation. Still tiny. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, called Earthbound Brewing. And the reason the article caught our attention was they talked about the fact that they were taking over the location of an old brewery, and as they were working on the building, discovered the old brewery's loggering caves down in the basement. You know, so there are actual beer cave cellars under their new brewery site. So we absolutely had to talk about this because, come on, it's your own beer cave. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And so uh, earlier today, Denny got on the phone uh, with Rebecca from Earthbound and had a chance to talk. If you can't tell... I'm kind of suffering from a cold right now, so I had to take a break. <laughs> yeah, and uh, she had a really, really fascinating story to tell, not just about the caves. So uh, unless you're driving, grab yourself a beer, sit back, and listen to my conversation with Rebecca Schranz of Earthbound Brewing in St. Louis. Hey, everybody, this is Denny, and I am talking to Rebecca Schranz of Earthbound Brewing in St. Louis. How are you today, Rebecca? Great. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. I hope you're going to have a good day. Are you brewing today? I am not brewing today. Oh, well, that can be good and bad, huh? Sometimes it's nice to have a break. That's right. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into brewing. All right. Um, so we Earthbound Beer has been open since November 2014. Um, we are already in a transitional move to a bigger facility. Um so that's to say we've done quite well, but um, the reason we were able to get to this point is because um, we started really small. 
So I am an owner along with my business partners, Stuart Keating and Jeff Siddons. Mm -hmm. They are both from Oklahoma. They met each other in college. Stuart came here for law school. I met Stuart after he finished law school when we were both working at an environmental policy nonprofit. Um, sort of established a working relationship there. Um, figured out we could work together pretty well. Uh, both of us have our quirks and difficulties with working with others, but we tend to do pretty well together. Um, so when Jeff moved here, um, he talked to Stuart about opening a small business. They decided on a brewery, and then I got invited in. Um, as the third partner. How do From there, I, uh, I ended up learning how to make beer, so I actually had no prior beer experience at all. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> Not at a drop. <laughs> and uh, turns out I'm really good at it. Um, <laughs> That's great. Probably have just a touch of OCD, and that tends to be helpful when you're trying to mine the beer. Yep, I, I think that that's true of most brewers. Yeah. So you had never gone through home brewing or anything like that, huh? Not, not a thing. Um, I was actually falsely diagnosed with a chronic illness, so um, I hadn't been drinking for almost two years. Um, they told me... They, they got it wrong, and three months later, I was signing papers on the brewery. So. <laughs> that is a remarkable story. Yeah, I had to play a little catch-up. <laughs> so you started brewing then in 2014 when the brewery opened? Um, so we opened in November of 2014. I, I myself really got more into the brewing process a little later into 2015, so I would say springtime. Um, is when I really got my hands into the brew house. So you started out by hiring a brewer? Uh, Stuart Brewed. So oh. we, we, it was just the three of us initially. Um, we opened our first location on $25,000 and a lot of learning from YouTube wow. and Craigslist. Wow, that's and, um So we built the entire brewery. We put together the system ourselves. Um all of the furniture in the tasting room. I mean, this, this location is really an extension of the three of us. It wasn't till later that we finally hired um, a bartender, because turns out when you're making beer and running a tasting room, you get pretty tired. And, <laughs> the, and Ryan, who's been with us, he was our first employee. He's still with us, and he's going to run um, front of house management once we move. He, he was really a godsend and sort of giving us a break right. and letting us just stick to the beer. But all three of us still do bartend. Um, we like to get some face time with the customers. So how did you go about learning to brew? Um, so I shadowed Stuart for a long time, um, and by a long time, probably a couple of weeks. And then he said, okay, it's your turn. And um, not to say I did fantastically well my first time on my own off the bat, but um, just being immersed in it and getting it done and messing up and having successes, it's all part of it. So I've, I have our system now incredibly dialed in. I could do it in my sleep, and sometimes I do dream about it. <laughs> I know that feeling, believe me. So had Stuart, like, brewed at other breweries or been a home brewer or anything? He was a home brewer. Okay. Yeah, so none of us actually had any actual brewery experience. Right. So how big of a system are you brewing on? Right now, barrel and a half. Yeah. Um, 
We are moving to seven barrels at our new location, but I have been brewing on a 30-barrel system, doing 15 barrels at a time for our distribution beer. So I go hang out in at Charleville Brewery and Vineyards in St. Genevieve, Missouri, uh-huh. um, for our, for our distribution beer. Just because right now a barrel and a half doesn't get me very far to <laughs> no, bring it out to the general public. Yeah, yeah, right. They can drink that up in an afternoon. Yeah, definitely. Oh, so, okay, so, um, what are your favorite beer styles to drink and to brew? Um, so I am always going to go dark and malty. Even in July, I have no problem with a brown ale or a porter or a stout. Um, I think that's why we have air conditioning. Right. Um, but, I mean, it also goes a season, and I can't wait to just, like, n- not even think about my beer and just <laughs> drink down a goza. Um, yeah, that's a great summer beer. There's just no doubt about it. It's so easy. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily enjoy making the over-the-top IPAs. Um, I just don't like messing with hop slime. <laughs> just a cleaning issue, really, at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> so, so basically, it's a case of self-interest. Yeah, well, you know, brewing, everyone's like, oh, it's so cool, you're a brewer. And I'm like, I don't know, I'm a janitor that has, like, an end product that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I think that that is probably one of the most realistic descriptions of being a commercial brewer that I've ever heard. Yeah, it just, you know, so at the end of the day, it really does come down to, like, what's the easiest to clean up? <laughs> so, so, so the the IPA, yeah, the hop slime at the end, yeah, it's taking a little longer to clean out, so. Yeah, right, I know. I'm, I've, uh, I've brewed in commercial breweries a few times, and, you know, cleaning out the mash tun and the kettle are always the parts where you go, okay, where are the interns to do this? Yeah, I don't. I don't get the interns. It's me. It's, <laughs> we do have a new guy, and I. I had to go to Charlottesville yesterday to brew. Um, so I left him in charge of just running a CIP cycle on the boil kettle. I had already taken care of the mash tun. Right. And it was his first time, and I was like, "I'm not going to be here. This is how you run it. It's pretty simple." But um, I, I showed up this morning, and they said he took it to heart. He was over here scrubbing all day long. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man, it'll be interesting to show him once I'm here. You know how fast you can actually move through that. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's let's be pragmatic about this. Dude. Yeah, we got <laughs> hours scrubbing a boil kettle is not very productive. No, but it's, yeah. it's nice to see enthusiasm. So, um, when, when is your move happening? We are at the finish line. Um, well, maybe we're a little further back from the finish line, but we can see it. Um, I would say in the next couple of weeks here, we will be totally moved over. Right. And how much bigger is the new place? So currently we are at in a thousand square feet, 10 feet wide, a hundred feet long. I am not kidding when I say wow. it's a hallway and wow. I grew in a closet, um, at the next building, we are moving into an 8,000-square-foot space. That is a the only remaining building from Cherokee Brewery Company, um, which was a pre-prohibition neighborhood brewery here in St. Louis. That is so cool that you're repurposing the building. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's pretty cool because the reason Anheuser-Busch and the Germans even showed up to make beer here is we had um, basically the 
perfect conditions. We had the Mississippi River for water, and we are sitting on a bunch of caves in Missouri. We have karst geography, which allows a bunch of cave systems to have emerged. So here at our new brewery, we do go underground. Um, so it, it'll be pretty cool to sort of revive that practice of keeping stuff underground, and it's already pretty cool down there. I mean, we will have to do some HVAC Right. Just maintain the temperature, but for now, it definitely has sort of that feeling to it. Yeah, well, you know, and it was the caves that really caught our attention and made us want to uh, reach out and talk to you because that is so cool. So, did you know that they were there when you uh, when you agreed to take on this new facility? We did. Um, so, the closest cave system to our building is the Cherokee Cave System. Um, we are no longer tied into the cave system. A lot of just modern infrastructure has blocked off many of the passageways to any of the caves in St. Louis. Um, so ours originally was a sinkhole, <laughs> and then it was a limestone quarry. So there's actually quite a bit of cut limestone in our new building um, that they just used for building purposes. It was there and available. Um so basically, they built from the bottom up with our space, and our building was a stockhouse and one of the last buildings the Cherokee Brewery built. Um, so you can you can see the transition from um, connecting the buildings on the east to the new building at, at the time, um, and and the sort of change in available materials. It goes from a lot of limestone blocks to. Um, Red brick, which is also a pretty cool, interesting um, architectural detail in the new space. Wow, you know, I, I grew up in uh, in the Midwest in Iowa, so I can kind of envision the kind of buildings you're talking about because there were a lot of those around there too. So it's 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 amazing. Um, our walls are thirty inches thick. Wow. Um, each of the spaces, so upstairs on the ground level is where our tasting room is, and the brew house is in the back. Um, but that has 18-foot ceilings, and it's also arched, and it's basically mimicked downstairs as well. So Jeez. we have ground floor. We go, we refer to it as the basement, is um, where our fermentation, soldering, and packaging will occur. Uh-huh. Off that basement, there is... Um, what we refer to as the barrel vaults, some people call it the catacombs. It's basically, you know, what people sort of envision when they think of, like, French scary vampire movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's beautiful. It's completely arched. It's all limestone. Um, it definitely looks like a repurposed old cave. Um, and that's about three feet down from the main basement. And then... Um, if you walk to the back corner of the main basement, there is a sort of trap door in the floor that if you open it, there's another ladder and that goes down another 20 feet um, to what we refer to as the sub-basement. And so in total, we go 45 feet underground. Wow. And that... there, in the, in the sub-basement, we do hit bedrock. Wow. That is just unreal. I just... It's, it's a pretty cool space. Yeah. <laughs> and if people walk by it every day and don't have a clue. 
Really? So I, from reading the, the article in the paper, um, I gather that uh, you guys had to really do a lot of uh, work on the caves to make them usable again? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So when we came into the space, we knew that it was going to be a lot of work and that initially all we wanted to use was the basement. Um, so that's that 20 feet down. And then the room off of it, which is the completely arched limestone room. Hmm. That room um, was floor to ceiling with dirt and debris. So basically, because we're staying in the remaining building of Cherokee Brewery Company, when they tore down the buildings to the east and the west, they didn't just take that stuff out. They pushed it down into the basements um, with the idea that that would provide stability for the unused spaces, um, because basically the basements weren't used after the brewery left. Um, so we were responsible for getting all that stuff back out so that we could use it again. And how did you go about doing that? Um, about 20 people every morning with shovels, wheelbarrows, and an overworked conveyor belt. Oh, my God. And in total, I think um, the estimates are 1.2 million pounds came oh. out of the basement. Man, I that is just an overwhelming concept to even think about. It You should look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the pictures, and we'll post it, them on the website so people can see them. Yeah, um, it, was, it was a lot of work. And so we went from... 8 o'clock to 4 o'clock, five days a week for five weeks straight. And we had people come and we had people leave. And at the end of the day, it got done. And now we've got the beautiful space that we have down there. So what are you planning on doing with them now that you've done all that work? Well, so that the main floor in the basement is um, production. So mm -hmm. it will. that's where all the fermentation tanks, Sprite tanks. Um, actually, the barrel and a half system lives down there now. And then that side room, the really pretty one, is actually going to stay empty for a while. Um, basically, it's not up to code. Right. So we um, had intentions of using that, but it wasn't our first go-to. This is where we need to spend more money. Right. So let me sell a little more beer, and I'll get some electricity in there. <laughs> right. So do you have intentions of, like, say, loggering down there and storing yeah. beers and stuff? Um, it, it will definitely be used for uh, barrel storage. It mm -hmm. just seems the most ideal, picturesque situation for that. Um, in time, if we could use it as an event space, do, you know, chef's dinners or small gatherings down there, I think that... That space is really what it should be used for. Um, of course, beer production, but, you know, beer sits. So, yeah, right. Might right. as well sit with it. <laughs> Do you know if, if any other breweries in the area have, have ever used caves in the past or, or are now? Well, pre prohibition, basically any brewery that was operating in St. Louis had a cave underneath it. So, you can go online and look up a map of caves in St. Louis. Um, their visibility and accessibility um, were much more prominent in the 1800s just because infrastructure wasn't the way it is now. Um, so basically, if there was a cave, they put a brewery on top of it. Right. Just because, I mean, we're, we were French and German. Um, 
the Germans made all the beer, and they made plenty of it. So basically, every neighborhood had a brewery, and underneath that brewery was a cave. Jeez. That, that is just like wild for me to think about i live in oregon now and in the willamette valley and and here the water table is so high that most people can't even have basements the concept of uh, of all these neighborhood breweries all with their own caves is just extremely cool uh you know I'm, i'm so glad to see you getting some of that back you know definitely um i think that the most famous example of the cave um used for breweries is either the Lent Brewery, um, which has a dark and twisted tale of brewing, if anybody is interested in looking at the Lent family. Um, they definitely used their caves um, to the fullest extent, to a point that they connected the family mansion to yeah. the brewery through their cave system. And then, of course, Anheuser-Busch also used caves. Right. Yeah. Um for their cooling initially, too. And evidently, if you know the right people, you can sort of nudge somebody, but there's just not enough oxygen down in the cave systems at this point for it to be safe for people to go down, basically. Um, So it's hard to get down there. Yeah, oxygen is almost as important as beer. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Actually, in our sub-basement, you can't stay down there too long because the air is just too thin. So... Will the public be able to see any of these caves when you open your new location? Um, initially, no. Okay. Just because we it will be a production area, mm-hmm. um, we need to figure out the logistics, a.k.a. insurance, on um, taking people down. In time, we will do it. it it's not a forever no. Um, it's just a for the time being no. We will sort of offer a tour, I think, People are going to be really excited about the tasting room. Upstairs is beautiful. Um, it's a historical tax credit building at this point, so everything had to go back to the original. Um, so you sort of get a feel for what it could have looked like in 1880, um, plus some extra color on the wall. But <laughs> we we do want to show people, you know, the hard work that we put in just to get this place cleared out to make beer in it. Um, right. So... Eventually, yes, people will be going downstairs. And like I said, when I get that second room up to code, we would love to have the public down there for dinners and drinking and private events and that sort of thing. That would be really cool. And and how big is your tasting room going to be now? Um, I think upstairs with the tasting room, oh boy. Well, we have a mezzanine level too. Wow. So it's sort of this like... I don't know how many square foot so many the, the, feet we do have available to us. Um, here at the current location, we're about 400, and I think we triple over there. I think we've got 1,200 square feet in the tasting room. Don't yeah, right. the, act quote me. But then um, we, we will have a beer garden at the new location as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, so you can sit out and look at the building. Boy, that that's wonderful. Sounds like you guys have really, really taken a, a lot of care to to bring this place back to what it was, and and even more. You know, we we have tried our best. We actually met with the great grandson of one of the original owners, and when he gave us his blessing and said it looks great, we were like, okay, cool, we're doing we're doing this right. Um, and, and St. Louis is a huge beer city. It's it's massive. We have 
like 50-ish breweries in the St. Louis Brewers Guild as of, I think, I talked to Troika on Monday. Um, so we've, we're hitting the amount of breweries in the metro area that we had pre-prohibition. Wow. Um, That's great. So, I was I was out in St. Louis uh, last November to uh, to speak to the St. Louis Brews Homebrew Club, mm-hmm. and I was really really impressed by the beer scene there. There's just a lot going on and a lot of different styles. Not not what you just typically think of as Midwestern kind of beer, you know? No, not at all. Um, if you have a favorite beer, there's a brewery that makes it and does it super well here. Um, that's, that's sort of the thing. We don't step on each other's toes too often. Um, there is definitely friendship and camaraderie, not competition among the breweries here. Um, nobody speaks ill of one another, and when we see each other, there's a lot of hugs and a lot of drinking. That's great. That's the way it should be, huh? I mean, that's what beer is all about. Yeah, it's a community drink. <laughs> <laughs> there's, you know, of course, at the end of the day, everybody wants to make a profit, but you know, more often than not, when somebody comes through the door that's from out of town, they want to know where else they should drink. And it doesn't help me if I say nowhere, sit here. You know, <laughs> I send people to other places. And in turn, I have people walk through the door that say, hey, so-and-so at this brewery told me to come. That's, you know, that's, that's basically what we've seen since we opened. That's great. I mean, everybody benefits when you when you approach it like that. Absolutely. So before we uh, go and I let you get back to uh, not brewing today, uh, is there anything else we need to know about Earthbound? Is something you want to you want to tell us about? Um, I just think that Small and Mighty is a pretty cool way to go. We were uh, Rate Beer's 2015 Best New Brewery in Missouri, um, which I actually thought was a spam email when that one came through. <laughs> <laughs> we. Uh, we have Schlafly, who helped St. Louis's microbreweries establish themselves. There's um, the wonderful Stephen Hale at Schlafly, and at that point in time, he was sending us all these emails in the Brewers Guild email list saying that all these spam emails were going out about awards and don't open your award emails. And so when the rate beer one came through, I, I thought it was spam. <laughs> <laughs> and That's I had to great. spend like half an hour questioning whether or not to open this email. So I didn't want to, you know, shut down the computer. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it was real. Yeah, it was that was a pretty. That was a pretty cool thing. Um, but yeah, I just think you don't have to know the exact chemistry and breakdown of this and that. Um, to make good beer. I almost think just because I don't have the sort of expectations and limitations of like, this is what a beer has to be. We can push ourselves to make beer that is like, Oh, I think this is pretty cool. I want to drink this one. Um, and, and we just open up the, the availability and accessibility of beer to the general public because at some points we're learning with them. Right, um, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, no preconceived notions means that you can just go make damn good beer. Yeah, last year um, the St. or the National Honey Board is based here in St. Louis, and they have a honey beer summit each year. So last year I hung out with brewers from all over the country, um, pretty big names, 
And I was like, oh, yeah, I have a little brewery here in town, and we're going to go hang out there tomorrow. And, you know, I was kind of intimidated. All these people are <laughs> making spectacular beer that is now nationwide. And then here they come, walking into our 1,000-square-foot brewery, drinking the weird beer that we've got up on the board, and they were blown away, and it was awesome. It felt really good for people to be like, I did not expect this, and it's great. Um, so that was, that was a nice little pat on the back. <laughs> yeah, having having people enjoy your beer is about the, uh, the highest compliment a brewer can get, isn't it? Definitely. Um, it's even better when people don't realize the person behind them is the person that made the beer. And so they are actually speaking honestly. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, I'm looking forward to getting back to St. Louis and coming by and uh, checking out your place and your beer. I'm excited to have you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we have been talking to Rebecca Schranz from Earthbound Brewing in St. Louis. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today and talking about the brewery. Absolutely. It was great to talk to you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I, I really enjoyed that interview. When we originally contacted them, it was because we'd seen the story about the caves, and we'll post a link to that on our website so you can see some pictures. And the caves are definitely very cool. But to me, I think maybe one of the most interesting parts of that story is that Rebecca had never brewed when she became the head brewer there. <laughs> uh, it was great that uh, one of her uh, partners had brewed a little bit and could show her the ropes, but from there on, she just took over and does it. And uh, as you can hear from the interview, she's a pragmatic brewer after my own heart. Doesn't like to make IPAs because there's too much cleanup involved. Fortunately, on my scale, that doesn't matter a lot. But uh, great interview. Thank you for your time, Rebecca. And for those of you in the St. Louis area, their new place is going to be open soon. Go by, check it out, and shoot us an email and let us know what you think. So uh, we're going to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, it'll be time for some Q&A. So stick around. Why East is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham to bring you the Why East private collection strains for 2017. Our second quarter features a great variety of strains for saisons and related styles as we shift into spring and the warmer weather ahead. With their rustic and refreshing profiles and versatile pairings, there's no better way to welcome the new season. Try something funky with our Saison Brett blend, go classic Belgian with Beer de Garde, or discover Forbidden Fruit's unique flavors in a wit beer. Well, it's time for the part of the show where we see if we can come up with good answers or just answers. Well, we've got a bunch of your questions here, and we're going to try and answer them for you. So, Drew, you got the first one. I do. Oh, now suddenly I need the yeah. uh, Jeopardy think music in the background. Do, 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 <laughs> do, 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 do. You didn't know that had a name, did you? I did. <laughs> All no, right. I didn't. So the but first you would. Uh, of course I would. I play Jeopardy every day on my on my Echo. All right. Uh, Vince Catlow writes in from Facebook. He says, 
Hi, I heard the show on New England-style beers, and I have a question. Should I do a cereal mash on the flaked oats prior to my mash, or should I just throw them all in with my base malt? Thanks for the brew day inspiration. Well, one, you're welcome. And two, no. No no need for a cereal mash with flaked oats. In fact, I would say there's no need for a cereal mash with any sort of oat, with the exception possibly of the oat berries slash groats. And really, even then, it's not a cereal mash in the traditional way. It's just that you want the, the grain to be fully hydrated. If you go and you look at the website, a couple uh, months back now, I think, I did a quick and dirty science segment. And it was all about showing, okay, do f- steel cut oats have to be pre-cooked before they go into the mash? And it turns out the answer is no. So if steel cut oats can make it, flaked oats definitely will make it. So no worries there. Go and just dump them right in. Yep, and uh, a little uh, addendum to that, uh, just because I've seen the question come up on Facebook a couple times recently, no, you do not need to crush flaked grains. As a matter of fact, it's probably better if you don't. They can uh, potentially just gum up your whole mash if they're crushed. There's no need for them to be crushed, so just toss them into the mash there and go for it. Yeah, and when I did the science experiment, I also had you know steel-cut oats and flaked oats, and then I Trying to remember if I had in the results or not, but I also did a small portion of instant oats. And the only difference is really instant oats are just the steel cut oats just chopped up even further, which would be effectively what you're doing with your mill. And boy, those were not as fun. Yeah, yeah. Don't do it. You're wasting your time and you might be uh, creating troubles for yourself. Next question is yours. And the question comes from Todd Riley via email. Greetings, Denny and Drew. Let me start by saying I really enjoy your podcast. The information and entertainment I receive from each episode keeps me coming back for more. Wow, and we didn't pay him to say that, did we? The mind control signals are working. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) I've been a gypsy assistant brewer bouncing between different friends' homes, looking for tips, techniques, and knowledge to become confident enough to brew on my own. Now, with enough equipment to do so, I'm looking to jump in with both feet. Denny, you'll be happy to know that my very first batch was your Extract Rye IPA. Well, good on you, Todd. In that vein, I'm looking to brew an all-grain Rye IPA similar to Founders Red Rye IPA, but using a fair percent of Best Malt's Red X as my base malt. In my circles, not a lot is known about this particular malt. Other than the red hue... What type of characteristics can I expect from using this malt? Would I want to dial back the use of any crystal caramel malts in this recipe? Should I cut out American two-row or Marisotter completely? The clone recipes I've seen also use caramunic, aromatic malt, and special bee malt. I'm really looking for a blood-like color, a very small percentage of roasted barley maybe. I'm looking to brew an all-grain 10-gallon batch in the 65 to 7% ABV range and about 70 IBUs using primarily Amarillo hops. Any tips, percentages, or information you can give me would be helpful. Cheers. Okay, Todd, first a little bit of background on Red X. The word from the company is to make the reddest beer possible, use 100% Red X in a beer that's about 1050 OG. I guess the thinking is if you go any higher gravity than that, it'll start darkening up and won't be that uh, bright red color. Um, Red X does kind of tend to have a maltier taste to it. Uh, it's not like, like a crystal or, or something like that. I guess it would be 
closer to a Munich than anything else, but it's not exactly. So I would say, I mean, you know, this is, this is a guess, man, because you want that bright red color. And I don't know that this is going to get it for you. I do know that, uh, Using rye will contribute to that and at least give you a little bit of orange hue to it. So I would say probably go about, I would go about 40% pale malt, 40% uh, red X, and 20% rye and start there and see what happens. I don't think you're going to need the Caramunic, the Aromatic, or the Special B. Uh, because of the maltiness you're going to get from the Red X. But I'm guessing, man, and that's the reason why uh, it generally takes me two to five batches to dial in a recipe the way I like it. So start with that. Try try 40% pale, 40% Red X, 20% rye. See what happens. Yeah, and, you know, if you wanted to really make sure that you've hit that red color and you want a little extra insurance... You could always just go and make your own uh, your own cinema, effectively. If you can get your hands on some carafa malt, just cold steep it in like a mason jar, strain it out, and make your own little dark roasted syrup, effectively, or not syrup, but dark roasted water. Extract. Yeah. And if the beer goes into the keg and it's not coming out with the exact right color, if you do that, say, a day ahead of time, you can then strain it. I, I would usually throw it in the microwave for uh, just to get it boiling, just to sanitize it, because paranoia. And then right. dose a little bit of that into the keg, and that that will brighten up your, your color, turn it, uh, give it that red, but only just a little bit. Very, very tiny amount. A very tiny amount, like a tablespoon or less to start with. Yeah, and use that to see if that doesn't pop the red. And if it does, then next time when you do your mash, you can substitute that in. At the very least, you can have a nice red beer while you're uh, enjoying that keg. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of using Cinnamar for coloring beers as opposed to adding roast barley or something like that. When you uh, add roast barley, you have to guess at the amount and hope that you got it right uh, later on. Cinnamar, it's really easy to put it into a keg or your kettle, which is what I usually do, and just take a look at the beer color and keep adding a little bit at a time until you get the color you want. Yeah, uh, but I don't. It, know, people tell me that's cheating, but it, it's not cheating. No, and it's done by commercial brewers all over the world. The only problem is I don't know if Cinemar is available at the homebrew level anymore. It was for a little while, but I haven't seen it in a few years. But if you do craft a malt and steep it, you get pretty dang close. Yeah, I mean, Cinemar is just pretty much a, a coloring extract made of carafa malt. So. Yep. Okay, buddy, you get the next one. All right, next question comes from Ryan McCarthy via Facebook. He says, I just wanted to pass something by you to see what you think. I'm planning on doing a creamsicle ale beer and was going to try and use mosaic hops towards the end to get the tropical notes. I don't want it to drown out the orange. Would mosaic be the right fit, or say, cascade? Well, uh, Ryan, I, we talked a little bit about this offline, because I wanted to make sure I dialed in the right answer. But what I ended up telling Ryan was, just on those two choices, I would say that you're better uh, sticking with cascade than mosaic. right? So Because mosaic's going to be all sort of tropical fruit and some grapey notes and everything else, along with some of those citrusy tones cascade is going to be much more cleanly citrus right and if you're going creamsicle you want citrus so i would i would do that to push for that fruit other than the other pieces uh however the third option because 
If life gives you A and B and you don't agree with either of them, try and find C. My C option here would be actually Amarillo. Because I think Amarillo is the one that has kind of the most, you know, creamsicle orange type thing when done the right way, particularly when paired up against like a creamy body beer. Uh, a good example of that is Gumball Head. Gumball Head comes off very much kind of like creamsicle. And so nothing wrong with that. And I would say totally go for Amarillo as opposed to Cascade or Mosaic. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And another one to consider would be uh, Centennial because mm-hmm. you can kind of get some uh, orangey notes out of those sometimes too. Yeah, my worry with Centennial would be that you'd get more uh, pine. More uh, more lemon and stuff like that. More back to the the other citrus side. Yeah, it, well, and, and more, of the, more of the other notes that you find in a lot of American hops. You know, those piney uh, kind of notes that would distract from the fruit. So that's the reason why I kind of yeah. like the Amarillo. The Amarillo is very cleanly citrus fruit. Yep, that would definitely be my first try too. So, okay, and, our next quest. Go ahead. And and now for my weekly attempt to make Denny sound a name. Yeah, well, and that's not very difficult either. And I'm going to fool you this time. The next letter comes from Michael Carlson from Sweden. Oh, he says you via email, "Hi, I'm struggling with a triple. It's too sweet, and it has a banana aroma." One thing I would like to try is to increase the oxygen level in the wort in the beginning of fermentation. I know that I can get approximately 12 parts per million using oxygen and 8 parts per million using air. I hope I got that right. If I should go for pure oxygen, my only option is a disposable oxygen tube. I do not like disposable things due to their environmental issues. One other option would be to add air. But then I need to add air multiple times, maybe something like one dose every hour for the first six hours. Now my question, can you recommend an aeration scheme like a duration in minutes at a specific flow rate every X minutes for Z hours, or maybe some time or indication when I should stop adding oxygen? Thanks for the show. It's a great contribution to homebrewing. Michael. Well, thanks, Michael. Kind words. Although I'm not going to give you the answer that you may be expecting oxygen is important uh, in a beer to uh, aid in yeast growth, but I don't think that's your trouble. Um, too sweet and has a banana aroma. The banana aroma says to me that uh, you might have been fermenting it too warm. Now I'm going to base this on things that I don't know anything about in terms of uh, how you're brewing this. When I make a triple, I use Y-E's 3787, and I start the fermentation at uh, about 63 degrees. Uh, I make a big starter, uh, at least a two-quart starter. Unlike a lot of people, I depend on getting the alcohol content of Belgian beers from a low finishing gravity as opposed to a high starting gravity. That means that uh, unlike some of the people I see who are making a triple that starts at 1090 to uh, 1100, my triples basically don't start any higher than the mid-70s, but I count on getting them to finish in in the area of maybe like 1006 to 8, something like that. In order to do that, I try to make a very fermentable word by mashing a long time at a low temperature and using maybe about 20% of table sugar in it to uh, make a very fermentable wort. 
Uh, between that and my large starter of healthy yeast, uh, I find that uh, I get great fermentation. I get the alcohol content that I'm looking for. And I don't have to worry about the, the banana esters, which I really, really don't care for at all. So, Michael, I'm going to assume that you haven't been doing those things and tell you right off the bat to try that first. Uh, in terms of oxygen, remember, oxygen is important because the yeast uses it to synthesize sterols that keep the cell walls flexible to aid in budding and uh, increasing your yeast cell count. The deal is, though, man, if you pitch enough healthy yeast, there's not a whole lot of need to do that. You do want to get some growth in there because it, it keeps the esters down and, uh, and makes a better tasting beer. But you don't need to really go crazy if you, if you pitch a large amount of a healthy yeast starter and you keep the beginning of fermentation at a low enough temperature. Uh, when I do want to oxygenate, I use a thing called a mixter wine degasser. That's M-I-X-S-T-I-R. It attaches to a drill. You put it in there. You whip it around, and it's fine. Uh, adding air multiple times, uh, like you're talking about, I, I you know, for again, for my triples, I just don't worry about it because they're not high enough gravity. If I was making a super high-gravity barley wine or something like the... Uh, Drew's mortgage killer, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, then I would definitely want to add more air. If you're starting a triple in the mid 70s, gravity wise, and at 63 degrees with a lot of yeast, it's just not necessary. So there I am, not answering your question, but I hope it was useful anyway. Well, and hey, Michael, just to throw in my own two cents, because why leave Denny the last word? I would say if you are worried about oxygen, Denny's right. Most of your real problems are going to be handled if you can get a sufficient quality of yeast in there, you know, if they're at good viability. But even then, I mean, get a good starter going and get aeration. It works pretty well. I I stopped fussing with oxygen years ago unless I'm doing something really massive. So in this particular case, I agree with the old man. <laughs> I have the Drew Beecham seal of approval. I'm impressed. Yay! Don't go blowing a seal. Yay! Okay, now after those questions, we have a quick tip that kind of started out as a question. And uh, since it involves sous vide, I'm going to let Drew handle it. All right, so our quick tip actually comes from uh, Jared McClear from Greenville, Ohio. And as Danny pointed out, it started as a question, so I'm going to read it as he wrote it in and then tell you what I think. It says, uh, I heard Drew mention the jewel, uh, that's my sous vide device, while listening to this week's podcast. Have you ever considered using the jewel to hold the mash temperature? I use it with the brew in the bag method, and it seems to work great. I've been using it for the last few months. After each brew, I run the jewel in a glass of vinegar to clean it up. I use a turkey frying pot as my mash tun and kettle with the setup. I've brewed five to six batches so far and don't see the downside. Can you think of anything negative that I'm missing? And Jared also included a photo with us that showed his kettle with the brew in the bag in there and the jewel sitting off to the side with in the liquid with the grain in the bag separate. So no grain should theory get to the jewel. Well, Jared, you're not the only person I've heard uh, this sort of tip from. My only problem, and the reason why I haven't advocated for this in the past, is all the sous vide manufacturers out there will tell you, 
do not cook food with the thing directly, right? They say only heat water using this device. Now, of course, beer is mostly an aqueous solution, so it's mostly water anyway. Is there a problem? I think the only real problem that you have is making sure that the thing is designed to have some sense of food safety, and good lord, you would hope it is, and the Jewel's a pretty snazzy device. But the other one is that you are going to have to worry about potentially shortening the lifespan of your device because of the sugar and everything else coming up. But I think if you're doing all your maintenance properly and you're taking the thing apart and making sure that it's not gumming up, go for it. It's pretty rad. I like the idea of, of using it that way. I've been using uh, the Jewel to do some other things like lactobacillus starters and making yogurt, naturally. So there are other places where a, a sous vide device can come in handy in the brewery as well. That's cool, man. And, you know, and of course, that's the first thing I thought of, too. So uh, I, I think with that caveat, give it a go. Yeah. I mean, and here's the thing. These sous vide devices now are becoming relatively cheap enough. You know, you can get an Innova now for about 100 bucks that you may be in a position where you can just go buy one and say, if it dies, it dies. So there you go. At least, you know, cheap enough you can experiment with one and, uh, you know, knowing what the consequences may be. Exactly. All right. Last segment. Yes, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show, something other than beer with your host, Mr. Drew Beecham. Yeah. Well, so I am a computer guy. We know this. I am a nerd. We know this, too. And yet, for whatever reason, I find like when I'm trying to do a lot of stuff in my day-to-day life, I actually need to write it down, not type it out. You know, I've got a keyboard here in front of me. I've got several, actually, because that's how I roll. But I find that for day-to-day living, both at work and in this podcast and, and everything else I'm doing, I am actually much better off with a notebook. And so my notebooks are important to me. I'm not kidding. I have gone through dozens and dozens of different types of notebooks, trying different things out. So, of course, this being a newfangled age, I have to try out a new notebook. And with Christmas came around, my mom actually sent me a new notebook because she knows I'm fanatical about notebooks. And she sent me one from a, a company called Rocketbook, and they make a notebook called The Wave. It's a nice paper notebook. And as long as you use these special pins, which are just a pilot pin called Friction that's an erasable pin, uh, you can actually write in the book. It has an app that allows you to scan the pages directly into your iPhone and send them automatically off to your Gmail and your Dropbox and your Evernote and all that sort of fun stuff. So all you have to do is mark certain boxes down at the bottom and it goes different ways. Kind of cool. And yeah, it also had another function with it, which is as long as you're using those special pins, when you're done with it, and the book notebook has like 70 some odd pages on it, when you're done with it, you could go throw it in the microwave with a cup, coffee cup of water microwave it for three minutes, flip it over, microwave it for another three minutes, and all the ink would disappear. And you'd be able to use the book. That's amazing. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But that was so 2016. And now in 2017, (laughs) Rocketbook actually just launched and just delivered the Everlast Notebook. And it's a much smaller notebook. It's only uh, 36 pages. But as long as you use those same special pins that I mentioned before, the frictions from Pilot, you can actually erase them with a wet cloth because the pages themselves are a special polymer page. It's not just paper anymore. So now you can go and wipe it off with a wet cloth. You try and wipe it off with a, a dry towel. It doesn't do anything. So it's kind of cool. And this has, become, wow. this has become my new notebook of choice. And I carry it around with me all the time. You will see me with it. And word of warning, if I do not write something down in the notebook, I will not remember it. <laughs> 
I know that's true. I've I've seen that happen. Uh, I guess you want to be really careful to make sure you don't like drop that in the water or something, huh? Well, yeah, but at the same time, it if you're scanning your pages regularly, you'll have a backup on your phone and, and oh. in your Dropbox and everything else. Kind that's of true. That's true. You have a backup. Okay, did we make it? I think we did. All righty. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. Eventually, we'll be on Instagram. We're on a bunch of different beer forums. Uh, I'm on the AHA forum and pretty much anyone you look at. Drew spends a lot of time on uh, the Reddit homebrewing forum and homebrew Slack. Is that the name of the one? Yep, yep, the homebrewing channel on Slack. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he is Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So we'll be back in a couple weeks. Until then, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.